they didn't want something that was perceived to be my project. George's Arena. Is that what you think? It was an element of that. It was announced at the same time as they took away my bike stand at the City Hall. You know, it was just an element of pettiness. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. After the recent State of the City mayoral speech, this week we talked to Marvin Rees's predecessor, George Ferguson. Ferguson was the first elected Bristol mayor when he defeated Rees in 2012. Rees then came back to defeat him in 2016. So what is life like for Ferguson after politics? And his legacy? What's he most proud of? What are his biggest regrets? And what does he think of today's current regime? And Bristol Zoo? What should be built on the site as it moves across to Wild Place in 2024? Some people want houses... George Ferguson's involved in a project that wants to build something completely different. Hey, George. Hi, Neil. How you doing? Really good, considering. I mean, poorer, you know, with all the lockdown stuff and uh, bars yeah. and what have you, but really fortunate to be alive and fit. For sure. And I guess you've been affected by that a bit then, particularly with the um, tobacco factory. Absolutely. I mean, financially, it's put businesses like ours back four or five years in terms of loans and what have you. I mean, the government, while, you know, we've got lots of criticisms of the government, the the government loans have been useful, but nevertheless, they've got to be paid back. How how hands-on are you on them? Because obviously people that obviously know you as former Bristol mayor, but your, your background was as an architect, you also kind of run the tobacco factory, the Bristol beer factory. So in terms of your sort of time, how do you sort of balance it all? Are you sort of hands-on type of person with this stuff or do you tend to sort of delegate things? I delegate a lot. I, I interfere, but I delegate okay. a lot. You know, yeah. The, the secret, secret of life is good managers and I'm lucky I've got fantastic managers. To see, you know, those big events happen in Bristol, was there a part of you that thought, oh, bloody hell, why didn't that happen when I was mayor? major crises no I, I had other things though that were brilliant you know having the opportunity to become european green capital and to be able to get that over the line was really yeah. really big it may have been bigger outside the city than it was inside the city by perception but yeah. i can tell you this is a lot better city as a result of the things that mm. we were able to bring in the grants we were able to give um as a result of being european green capital would you have that down as one of your big achievements? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was strange. I have to find, you know, it was strange the way Marvin tried to unravel everything. And I don't blame Marvin. I think those were the political apparatchiks that came in with him um, that decided that it was best to try and talk down everything I'd done and unravel everything. And you you mean in things, ge- in general, or just specifically? No, um, in general. In general, and, did you? Oh, you honestly felt that you felt that uh, a campaign to undermine what you'd achieved or what you'd done before. It by, was by, on every yeah. level. It was. Okay. It was. It was. It was. It was stupid politics. I mean, you, you know, I hate I hate party politics in local government. It seems to be it just takes that party game into our cities because obviously you pitched yourself kind of almost like that when you won first time round as the sort of non-politician politician, mm. yet you had been a politician, hadn't you? So you had been a, a Liberal Democrat councillor. No, I was a Liberal. In, yeah, in the 70s, in Cabot, Cabot Ward in the 70s, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And, that and, then, the... and you stood as a Liberal Democrat MP in 1983 and 1987 Bristol West. So, you, so, so you weren't completely party politically not necessarily neutral, but you'd been involved in party political oh, yeah. politics. I've been yeah. involved, but then I, I, I just got out of party politics because I just thought that it was tiresome. And I never thought that I'd get involved in politics again. And um, my only purpose in life is to make, is to make things happen. You know, that yeah. has been, and sometimes you've got to enter the political fray in order to make things happen. But um, I have a great distaste for party politics and the way it divides people and it was 
absolute pleasure. It was yeah. an absolute pleasure to bring all four parties together in my cabinet. I mean, Labour were slow into coming into it. But mm. once they did, those two members that came in were brilliant. And we got on so well. We're all, you know, they left their party politics out of the door most of the time. And they knew they had to. And we we made good decisions. And I can't remember. Do you, do you see that happening when you look at when you look at it now, when you talk about the um, obviously there is a in after the last election, there's a neck and neck now between the Greens and Labour. And, and there is still not a rainbow cabinet, which you obviously introduced and Mayor Marvinry's had for a brief period. Do you now look across from outside politics and and see it as being arguably even more divisive in, in yeah. Bristol? I mean, I do think Marvin's missing a trick. I think he he gets a bit too tetchy about opposition and, you know, some of the things he said about some of his opponents. He's not very tolerant about disagreement. And I think you need people who challenge you within your cabinet. You need people to ask the questions. They educate. I learnt from, from the other people in the other parties. Do you think he's got too many people, too many people that don't challenge him, too many yes people around his inner circle? Um, absolutely. And, you know, the only person I brought into the city council, because I, I don't quite understand the system now, but mm. the only person I brought in, because I was only allowed to appoint one person, was Zoe Sear, who was my sort of right-hand person. And... Zoe doesn't have a political bone in her body. She's um, just a very open, easy to get on with person who would get me out of trouble when I got into trouble. She's and a that, communication specialist. Isn't she's, she? a, yeah. she's, she's just a decent, nice person, you know. And that was the only person I brought in because I didn't want it to be all, all political and apparatchik like. Um, I feel that now it is. And. Um, you know, I think a lot of people that blame Marvin for things really should be blaming the the system and the people that have people around come him. in yeah. to to protect him. On on criticism, I mean, some people would say there were moments when you were a bit defensive and sensitive at times, and maybe towards the end of your tenureship, in, in the similar way that sometimes Marvin expresses frustration and feeling sort of jaded by the what he would call the sort of political football. Uh, would it be fair to say you felt a bit like that yourself at times as well, though? At, at times. I think, um, I think early on, actually, I was more irritated than I did later. I think I got more tolerant. Okay. Yeah, if I have any, regret, any regrets, I should have been more tolerant. And, um, but on the other hand, I had a short time. I was pretty sure I only had a short time. You know, I only had three and a half years. I'm so proud of what I produced, you know, in three and a half years. I want to talk a little bit about the recent election in a minute. Who did you vote for, by the way? In the recent election? Mayoral election. Oh, in the recent mayoral election? Yeah. I voted green for... For Sunday? Sandy, um, I think, you know, an independent will always claim that, will always claim that they're not closer to any party, any one party. But the fact is that what drives me more than anything is health, climate, environment. And uh, why didn't? And why? Because obviously there's a connection, isn't there? Sandy Paul Riven's partner is Zoe Sears, who was, as we spoke about earlier, was your your uh, head of comms or uh, what was the job title. For me, it was interesting as to why there wasn't an independent going into the next election with Marvin Reese announcing that he won't be standing. Is there an opportunity now for somebody with profile like you had in the city for an independent, strong independent candidate to stand again and potentially win? Well, I think you have to tell me who, because, I mean, you have to be very high profile. I was the only independent in a major political post in the whole of the UK except for police and crime commissioners. So why were you able to, it's so rare, what, what was it, What was different about you and your campaign? Um, I've been around for a long time. My name was reasonably well known in most parts of the city, not all. Um, I was recognisable. I had this um, 
trick of being more recognisable than some people because I always wear red trousers. But yeah, that wasn't a plan. That was no. just one of those lucky it was, things. Yeah. Uh, what was that about, by the way? Just, just, just on a side note, what, what, when did that start? What, why the red trousers? I just hate wearing a suit. And I thought I'd invent something that is my uniform. Because you've done that for years, haven't you, before? I, I mean, I've met presidents and kings and queens and yeah. prime ministers, and I've never, you know... So never... have, you got, have you got, like, so many, like, different types of red trousers, like, all lined up in a the cupboard, then? Uh, more than I wear, yes. Um, Let, let's talk about so the state of the city speech has just happened and that's something that, that you, you you did yourself I think you were obviously the first one to have done that did you watch the state of the city speech or do you kind of sort of detach from those things these days I normally do but I was in the theatre watching a Wuthering Heights by Emma Rice at the at the, the, theater, Vic, at, yeah. the at the Bristol Old Vic which is actually mm. bloody brilliant I do yeah. recommend it so you didn't watch it and, you didn't watch and it. I, I, I would hate Marvin yeah. be listening to me saying I'd rather be watching a play at Bristol Old Vic than listen to him, but uh, that was a commitment. Um, yeah. I do usually, because I think it matters. I'm really pleased Marvin's carried on with it. I did get a bit huffy at the time when he cancelled the arena project. So at his first State of the City speech, I, I got a bit huffy listening to it. Um, he but, made reference to that to it, George. He said, I've got the quote here, um, but I was right with the arena because it would be environmentally friendly, far more env- environmentally friendly by repurposing old hangars rather than building from scratch well, in terms uh, of steel you, and concrete, is what he said. With, with, with due respect to Marvin, that is bollocks. Okay. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm the architect. I do know that, right. okay. uh, yeah. that, that the old hangar is only a rain screen. It doesn't do anything to really... Uh, reduce the costs or the amount of materials which are going to be it's more difficult it's more expensive building within the old hangar the price is now heading towards 200 million yeah and it's only an illustration and you know we would we would have the arena by would it be here now if you were still mad it would have been here three years ago and uh Certainly two years ago. What do you think about his comeback when he's spoken about, well, hang on a minute, we've had COVID and lockdown. Had we gone ahead, it would have been a white elephant. It would that this, this confirms that this was the, the right approach we took. Come on. Uh, you can't use that argument, you know, when nobody even dreamt of us having COVID. I think that is, you know, it's no. I think that, that's well, a that's a silly argument. You could say that, smaller you know, bands as well. You know, we, we can't have Coldplay in a, in a twelve thousand arena. We need a bigger, far bigger arena. That sort of thing. Big bands. That's, that's one of his well, other arguments. We'll only be full very few days of the year. We were advised. You know, we we got the best. Uh, yeah, the the best advice about optimum size. And optimum size was twelve thousand capacity, of which ten thousand were seated. And then it would be used to capacity many more times in the year than mm. uh, sixteen or seventeen thousand capacity, which would would sometimes be filled, but 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 less often, and therefore is less economical. So you know, you can argue it either way. I mean, you could argue for a twenty-five thousand capacity arena, but it would only be full very you know couple of why, days. So why do you think, if that is the case, then, and I, I, if that is the case, why do you think? He didn't want to um, to go ahead with it. Well, I think it was a mixture of um, probably advice from his apparatchiks, but I think it was a mixture of they didn't want something that was perceived to be my project. George's arena. Is that what you think? There was an element of that. It was, yeah. you know, it was yeah. announced at the same time as they took away my bike stand at the City Hall. You know, it was just, it was, yeah. So I think there was an element of pettiness. Okay. But, the people who, um, YTL, who offered to build the arena out at Filton, they'd come to my office um, wanting, you know, wanting to do the same thing, and I'd sent them packing. And, mm. um, yeah, I gave them 15 or 20 minutes or something. He'd gone out to um, <laughs> he'd, he'd gone out to Malaysia and uh, uh, had a, a, you know, good time out there with them. And I think they managed to persuade him 
and actually I feel I, I feel slightly duped by them because I was promised by their director in this country that um, they wouldn't do anything to undermine the Arena Project Temple Meads. And the Arena Project Temple Meads, of course, is more sustainable. It's at the biggest transport, public transport hub in the southwest. It helps business within the city. I mean, that is a really important factor. No city now would build an arena on its edge. No, no sensible city would unless they had no possible site within the city. I know you've obviously you've been mayor. Are you still in favour of the mayoral system? Because arguably, in in a weird kind of way, that was a demonstration of some of the critics of of the lack of you know democratic uh, sort of the democratic deficit of the mayoral system, where literally pretty much every councillor cross party either abstained or voted for the arena to be in the centre. Yeah, well, right? But obviously, it was vetoed by the mayor and went in a different direction. Yeah. So, in a weird way, is is that is that did that make you reflect upon? maybe some of the powers that the mayor actually has? No, I'm strongly in favour of the mayoral system. Bristol is in a very strange position in that we were ahead of everybody else and that we were the only city that voted by referendum to have a mayor. And Very low there, wasn't it? Was it 20? Turnout was like 20. Yeah, but we did vote to have a mayor. And I think anybody would say that that did give Bristol a lift. It gave Bristol a lift in the eyes of the government. It gave Bristol a lift in terms of its international profile. Um, you know, I'll say immodestly that I was nominated for being the mayor, the, the, the top mayor of the world at one point. You know, we got really high profile. But what has happened since is that the government have gone for metro mayors. And when you look at the two Andes, Andy Street and the West Midlands, and Andy Burnham and Andy Burnham in, in Greater Manchester. They they're sort of regional prime ministers. Now yeah. we've got you know, we've got Dan Norris as our Metro Mayor, but I feel he's being terribly undermined by the fact that there's another mayor in Bristol. And what did you make on that then, George? What did you make of the recent events in the last couple of weeks where the, the, the Bristol mayor and the heads of the other local authorities have sort of got well, together to veto Dan Norris a bit. What was your feeling about that? I was very angry about that. I think that has damaged us tremendously. And I think that was probably affected the fact that we've not got as much transport funding as the other regions have. Yeah. In fact, we didn't get any increase in our transport funding while all the other regions benefited from a share of several billion um, increase. And so... I, I think we have been weakened in the eyes of Westminster because of this petty behaviour and yeah. partly, unfortunately, between the two mayors. So I, I think Dan Norris so far has done a very good job and I feel very sorry for him that he's being undermined in that way because we do need to build up the strength of our metro mayor who is our representative in terms of the the city regions, the bigger issue about transport, planning, housing. You can't deal with those issues just within the tight city boundary. So, But can you have, is there an argument to say now there are more metro mayors, to, that city mayors are, are no longer required as much? There are people whose views have changed on that. So the, the Tory candidate. Mine. I mean, I, yeah. actually, I, I, I think we should invest in the metro mayors and okay. and the, all the districts within the within so you would now do away with the with the bristol now we have a metro mayor we do not need a bristol mayor yeah no if a metro mayor existed that's what i would have stood for i only yeah, had i, see. Know, I didn't okay. have a choice but yeah. i absolutely believe that marvin should be the last mayor of bristol and that dan should be the first effective metro mayor of um <laughs> Yeah, understood. Uh, understood. Of the west of England, which should be called the Bristol and Bath City region, because where the hell is the west of England? Sure. Let's talk a bit about. I just want to talk a bit about finance, if that's all right. Just in regard to how you feel. So, I mean, the good example. There's been some examples uh, in recent times where there has been a financial shortfall that gets blamed on you. So, Bristol Energy, for example, which 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 added uh, an additional forty five million pound to the taxpayer was blamed on you. 
Oh, well, that was a wonderful bit of political manoeuvring. Well, yeah, what did you feel? Any, any, any sort of credence to that? Well, I think it's been a bloody disaster, Bristol Energy. I think it was, it was struggling, but it got its 200,000 it targeted uh, customers in terms of electricity and gas customers. Um, it was as well placed as any of the new energy companies. But then there was writing on the wall pretty early on that, you know, in, in terms of because it only came into being just towards the end of my time. So you would have pulled out, you would have pulled out when you saw writing on the wall sooner? Well, I like to think I would have done. You never know because you never know, you know, depending on the advice you're given and you have to take, you know, you have to take good expert advice. But I think it was bonkers to put, you know, to throw so much new money after old or bad. Yeah. So how does that feel when you hear that? Then? You're obviously you're obviously you're you're obviously not a politician now. Um, but how does that feel when you hear, you know, when 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 any pressing interviews, the mayor and and other councillors around the mayor saying that this is not our fault; it's your fault. Do, do you do you not feel like you want to speak out, or, or do you just yeah. have to take it on the I chin? Try to, I try to bite my tongue and just hope that people realise that's the silly game of politics, and that you, you know. But five years after uh, blaming me, I think it's a bit rich. And, and I think that, I mean that what you you said earlier about you felt like you were being blamed for a lot of things or, or miss kind of misblame for certain things happened in your tenureship when you left. But there was the Brundred report, which identified that there were substantial savings of over 29 a million that had been falsely accounted during your administration. Kerry McCarthy brought this to Prime Minister's Question Time and she said, um, she described, and this is a direct quote, the abject failure by the previous mayor, George Ferguson, to get a grip on council finances. Uh, come on. Did you, do, you want to, do you want to respond to that? Now, 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 yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that was a device. Um, what what um, Marvin did, he set up uh, reviews of bloody everything. You know, he set up a review of 20 miles an hour, he set up a review of Greek capital. Um, I was absolutely... Uh, justified in in both those things. He set up a financial review. What Brundred didn't look at was the capital benefits that I left him with, which was enormous, um, which far exceeded uh, whatever, you know, I mean, I I think it was an exaggeration over the 29 million. But Mm. what they did is that they took out one part of that report and exploded it without looking at the whole picture. And that is what politicians do. You take out, you know, you've got a 10,000 word report or whatever it is, and you take out um, 200 words and you magnify those. And that's what happened. But the fact is that an awful lot of the things that are happening now as a result of the capital benefits that I built up in land purchase and land sales and things, um, that uh, they so you might would be- kick back against that charge because I think that was what the Marvin's campaign was very much focused around we will bring back transparency and you know you were a businessman that really kind of it was involved in golden handshakes and we're going to come in and clean up politics and have be open and honest transparency the irony is you know fast forward to 2020 what we're now 2021 that's exactly what an awful lot of critics are saying about the current regime particularly from the particularly from the green party yeah well i i don't enter that debate but um all I can say is that I never hid anything. I was as open as you could be, and that's that's. And I, I certainly would not accept that that there was anything concealed at all. The Bristol Port wasn't Bristol Port something that you were criticising. I'm very proud of what we did with the Bristol Port. You see that yeah. that was a wonderful example of stupid politics. Um, the port came to me, and they had been talking about buying the the difference between the freehold and the leasehold, I know it all sounds a bit technical, for about three million. I said, well, I wouldn't sell it for less than 10 million because politically it's a really difficult thing. And they said, well, that's, um, yeah, that's out of the question. Anyway, they did come back to me because the one value in it was that um, some of the uh, foreign lenders like freeholds so that that did give it some value, and ten million was pushing it. But 
So it would never, no administration would have got more than 10 million out of it. And we've lost nothing. The city have lost nothing. But, that, but the, I think the perception at the time... The, the, it was the, a 10 million pound bonus that sure. has... But obviously many councillors were opposed to that. There was a bit of a, I think, a, a kind of perception that um, obviously you're a former merchant venturer. These were merchant venturers that you knew personally, uh, David Ord and Terence Mordaunt, that that whole, it was kind of, that was very much played into the hands of, you know, the counter movement or the counter argument to you that this is unregulated, untransparent, golden handshakes, that kind of, that gave a foothold for the opposition in- to gain ground with yeah. regards to George is, you know, dodgy with money. That became a thing that was kind of perpetuated around. Yeah, well, no, anybody who knows me knows that I'm completely open and couldn't be less dodgy with money. But anyway, um, yes, people are going to take advantage of that. I was doing what I perceived and absolutely believe was the right thing, that Bristol has hugely benefited from it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, you're an architect, George. Let's talk about buildings, uh, yeah. tall buildings. Uh, obviously, this is something that the mayor is quite keen on, big, tall buildings like in the States. Your view on those? Well, I don't think we should learn from the States. I think we should learn from the best of European city planning. And the best of European city planning is about making the most of your history and character and uniqueness. And um, trying to turn Bristol into Birmingham or a, or a US city is an appalling thing to do. And I'm, I, I'm agonized by that. I really hate that that block that's gone up at the end of Castle Park, for instance, and you we, yeah. you know, and that was the illustration that was used for the um, for the state of the city address, and you know, it it says something very odd. Uh, you know, why do you try and turn Bristol into somewhere else? It is a childish, childish way of 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 going, to my mind, and we really should wake up to Bristol having its character wrecked by these. What, what what places should we be looking at then, George? What about Europe? What cities and places should we be looking at well, to model all our housing and you know and our infrastructure on? Well, look to Edinburgh, Copenhagen, Bordeaux. I mean, there are so many wonderful cities in in Europe that that have maintained their character. They've built on their character, and this to me seems like going down completely the wrong path. Now, I don't think that I'm going to be the right person to persuade Marvin to change, but I know lots of people are extremely angry about it and they feel that Bristol's heritage is being being damaged as a and result. And the anger is the anger is not just environmental, it's just about it's about um you tell me. Yeah, and yeah, the excuse is that we need more yeah, higher densities. Yeah, we need higher densities. But you don't have to have high buildings. I think that this, you know, as, this I do know as an architect and urbanist, mm. that you, you create some of the highest densities by creating good streets. And so these are status symbols. They're an absolute nonsense economically. They're a nonsense environmentally. They're using up much greater energy. You can't walk up them, therefore, that you've always got lifts going up and down. Um, is they, it the counter to your what you said earlier about you felt that Mayor Morven Reese didn't want to build the arena because it would have been George's arena? Building like the tallest building in Bristol, is that like an extension of that, which is that, you know, that's the building, every, you know, for years to come, people can point at that building and say, that's my building. That's the tallest building. I did that when I was mayor. Is there a bit of that going on, do you think? I think it's a male problem. It's very phallic, isn't it? It's very, I think it, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like guys with big cars, isn't it? Just going to jump in and tell you a bit about the Bristol Cable. This bit comes in every week, as you know. If you want to get involved, please do have a look on our website and chuck some money in each month so we can keep our media independent, surviving and able to be interesting and hold power to account across the city in a number of ways. Back to the chat. Let's talk about a little bit about housing. And you spoke a lot earlier about Bristol and how you kind of built a brand, the, the sort of big, the brand of city, of the city, which, you know, people see across the world more and, and unarguably sort of Marvin's sort of 
picked up and run with that a bit. Do you think you focus maybe a bit too much on that stuff, not on some of the more social inequality issues like housing? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I put health right at the top. Um, and uh, housing is a really important part of that. Transport is a really important part of that. The environment is a really important part of that. The air we breathe is is really important. And the air we breathe, is, and and that's the sort of equality I would like to see. I mean, you know, the 10-year life expectancy differential that we have across this city, sometimes between wards that are next to each other, is an absolute disgrace. Mm-hmm. And that should be... The absolutely at the top of the list. I started the rebuilding of council houses in the city um, after 30 years. The Lib Dems had, had, had begun the process, but I actually started delivering them. And, uh, of course, in three and a half years, you can't build a lot, but an awful lot of the council housing that's been, been built over the last five years is through the programme that, that I started. Do you think they've done well with their housing targets, Labour, since Marvin's been mayor? No. Because um, that's something they like, they, you know, they do push out that, you know, we're, we're doing right. this, that, the other with housing. No. You don't? No. no. I don't think they've done enough. But, um, of course, anything is better than nothing. But Did they do uh, more than you? Um, I think they benefited hugely from what we'd started. So, yes, they did do more because there was no council housing and no new council housing in this city. You've got to bear in mind, we lost 10,000 council homes in this city over the last, mm. you know, last couple of decades through the right to buy. That is an absolute scandal. So, no, I don't accept at all that I had less of a social agenda than, than Marvin, but mine was probably based more on equality of health across the city. Yeah, today, today, we've got the Mayor of London making the whole of the centre of London into an ultra-clean air zone. You know, why has Bristol been dragging its feet on this? I would have made the whole of Bristol an ultra-clean air zone. You know, I just find it extraordinary that we... Do you think it's not a priority? Do you think when you... When I, I interviewed Carla Denyer a couple of weeks ago, when just when she became the leader, the co-leader of the Greens, and, yeah. and she very much felt that a lot, you know, the climate emergency declarations and all these grand gestures were, were, weren't really full of much substance. No, that's why you've got to do stuff. I absolutely agree that... Yeah, with Greta Thunberg and their various royal highnesses, that we should, you know, the politicians stop just blabbing about it and get on with it. And, you know, doing what the Mayor of London's doing at the moment is actually doing it. Yeah, why are we, why is Bristol, European green capital, the only European green capital this country will ever have at present rate, why are we not ahead on that? Why are we dragging our feet? Why is Birmingham ahead of us on that? Why do you think they are? It's a, a false perception that the poor, um, the poorer people suffer most. The poorer people suffer most from poor health and poor quality air because they are living beside the radial routes into the city. But... Yeah, Marvin's got into his head that every poor person is entitled to keep their polluting car and that this somehow is acting against their better interests. Well, it's not. It is acting in their better interests. So I think we part company there in Mm -hmm. terms of priorities. Okay. Um, Another thing you're involved in is, which which kind of is, it sort of fits a little bit in in the context of a little bit of a sort of housing debate because. you are part of a gathering, a collective of group of people called Our World Bristol, which is basically about Bristol Zoo, most people know, is uh, relocating to Wild Place. And I think it'll, they'll be fully over there by 2024. And it's what happens to the land that the zoo currently sits on. Mm. You're part of a, an organisation with a, with a few people from the city looking at trying to create almost like a kind of Eden project type uh, educational place. You can tell me about that in a minute. Uh, but mm. the, the CEO and the people who run Bristol Zoo, the Bristol Zoological Society, they want to build housing on it. So if housing is important and we need more houses, why are you not supporting that? Well, it's 
is more posh housing in Clifton important? I, mean, I think, yeah. I mean, they're kicking back at that, aren't they? They're saying it's going to be affordable housing, low carbon developments. You're, you're cynical about that then? Well, every development's got to be low carbon now, so there's nothing special in that. We have a housing crisis. This is what uh, Dr. Justin Morris has said. We have a housing crisis. We desperately yeah. need homes. You're, you're <laughs> cynical about that? I'm extremely cynical about that. The, the fact is that Bristle Zoo is the only reason why people from all over the city and all over the country come to Clifton. It is the only reason. Otherwise, Clifton Suspension is, Bridge. People come to the Suspension Bridge, don't they? Well, to the Suspension Bridge, maybe. Yeah. But, but principal reason why yeah. half a million people a year come to Clifton. Clifton, otherwise, is expensive housing, expensive schools, and speciality shopping centre. And yeah. it's lovely, but it is expensive. It's exclusive. And the one thing that yeah, makes it more democratic is all families of all types coming to Bristol Zoo, and they can get there easily. You know, the bus goes there. It's, it is not as car dependent as an attraction on a motorway junction outside Bristol. Yes, there are some parallels with the, with the arena argument. But the reason that we got together, and I was thrown together with Stephen Daldry, who is the director of The Crown and Billy Elliot and other things. He's a, a brilliant guy who used to go to Bristol Zoo when he was a child and his family come from nearby. And we we just thought, this is bonkers. This is Philistine thing to do, to turn this 12-acre garden, a wonderful place, into a housing estate and flog it to a housing developer. Now, yeah, of course, there's got to be an element of affordable housing, but never is that more than 20%. I'd be surprised if it's more is than it? 20%. And then so-called affordable is only a percentage. It's usually 80 or 75%. This was mentioned in the State of the City speech by the mayor, who said yeah. that we, this is a chance to, to finally build affordable houses <laughs> in Clifton. In Clifton, yeah, is what he said. <laughs> yeah, okay, it'd be great if, it, you know, it's not going to be council housing, it's not going to be social housing, it's going to be very expensive housing whether it's market or so-called affordable, because so-called affordable is 80% or thereabouts of, yeah. of market value. It will be unaffordable to 90% of the population. It's so not. This is a financial to... decision being made by the Bristol Zoological Society it's to make as much money. Yep. It's, it's absolutely they want the maximum for the site. You don't blame them for that, but I do blame them for, for being on the wrong side of history and that – it was Bristol Zoo was the first provincial zoo in the world. It was only the fifth zoo in the world, you know, after a couple of capital cities. And this kind of stuff is important to you as an architect, as somebody, if you look at your record being involved in, I mean, the tobacco factory is an example of that, isn't it? Old buildings, preserving history, uh, renovating, making something modern that has a historical, that, that's, that is kind of your thing. So you see this as being a really, really, you know, if you just build a load of houses over what is a, a, a cultural iconic space that yeah. for you, that's just a no-go. Well, absolutely. We've got plenty of other, there are loads of thousands that are planning permission for thousands and thousands of houses within Bristol that are not being built. There are plenty of brownfield sites and other sites that are far less sensitive than this, which we, we could develop. And there are hidden ones that people even don't know about that are not counted in the current numbers. And yeah. so, it, it, of course, it's the zoo want as much money as they can get. But also, I think they should be following the principles of the founders of the zoo, which included Brunel, incidentally. And yeah. the, the principle was about education, about biodiversity, about wildlife, about, you know, understanding the world. And at a time when we're coming up to the COP26 and people are getting real anxiety about the loss of our biodiversity, here's an opportunity to enrich those gardens, make them truly biodiverse, to deal with something, lead the world. This is a global project. It's lead the world in finding a new way of not having captive animals you know, big cats in cages are completely yeah. unacceptable. So the zoo is right about giving them more space. But what we're talking about, and Tim Smith, who is part of our team and is the person who created the Eden Project, and the Eden Project have been absolutely marvellous with this. And they are going so they're to... behind this, are they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they're, very, they're, they're very strong supporters of it, as many, as many others are, both local and global. You know, what he describes as is a million-acre zoo from a 12-acre garden in that what we're going to do is use the extraordinary augmented reality and virtual reality 
that is now being developed by Bristol University at the My World project within the Vision Institute of the Bristol University. Use all the resources of um, the uh, BBC and the natural history filming. We are the Hollywood of natural history filming. We film more than half of it, I discovered now, in the world. Um, Use the fact that Bristol has all these strengths to create a new form of education for the animal world within the city. Um, and so do you see this as also a way, sorry to jump in, George, do you see mm. this also in the, in the wider context of, um, of, of, the, of the kind of city? Do you see yourself and others as kind of representing or kind of, or standing up against big, a big developer or big developers with this? Is that how, is that how you see this? Well, I've often seen myself as that. I did you with do. the harbour and with the development of Canners Marsh and Harborside. Yeah. I, th- I think that somebody has to stand up to these to 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 the bullies in in this world. And um, part of my life has been standing up to bullies, which and- is kind of odd, though, isn't it? Because, like, mm. yeah, I suppose there's, it, it's all levels, isn't it, of this kind of stuff? Like, you know, if there's big corporate um, housing developers. But you know you're not exactly like a small man, are you? You, you know you're not. You know you're oh, a man yeah. of wealth. You're well physically, perhaps, but you're you're, um, you're a man um, of wealth, aren't you? you? You know you're a successful businessman. You know you're an ex-merchant venturer. You're tapped into the levers of power in the city. I mean, some of these names of the advisors on the Our World Bristol. You yeah. know, Professor David Ball, Colton, uh, Tom Tom Morris, Bristol Old Vic, uh, Laura Marshall, director, Icon Films and the Merchant Venture, Peter Lord, co-founder of Ardman. These are all establishment names in Bristol, aren't they? Yeah, but there are also people from other, you know, the, the Cabot Learning Federation, um, the 91 Ways project that was Cold developed Wolf, during yeah. European yeah. Green Capital that is looking at all the food cultures in the world. There are, there are lots of other people involved Um that are um, certainly not um, part of that establishment. Um, I think my wealth um, is rather like my death, is is rather exaggerated. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've probably got a bigger mortgage than you, but I don't, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, don't maybe, have a yeah. load of money. I don't have a load of money floating around. We, mm. did, put, we did put some money in, each of us who, who yeah. sponsored this. Um, but you know you can't do anything without a bit. With you know, but but but, it's but a bit, I guess it's a David and Goliath kind of thing. That, that if if it's sort of painted, you know, you are an ex mayor. As I said, you're all those kind of things. That it's you know, this is not a group of sort of mums from Noel West getting together to sort of. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of these are big establishment sort of names in the city. Well, I think yeah. It, I mean, that's inevitable, isn't it? We'd love all the mums from the West to join us and um, the mums from Sazme, the, the mums from all over the city to join yeah. us. Mums in, or, or parents in particular, because our children matter and what, you know, and, and a lot of those children will never get to a car dependent yeah. visitor attraction um, outside the city. Is this another day, George? A cynic would say a bit like some of the criticism of green capital with the like, you know, like the weird tree thing that costs loads of money and some <laughs> of the kind of installation. Is this just not another George Ferguson vanity project? <laughs> no, no. I, yeah, if it was just me, you might think you might be able to say that. No, it absolutely isn't. Uh, the tree thing was one grant that we gave. Yeah, but you get my point, don't you? That people have that sort of, you know, is this not a distraction from the real bread and butter issues of Bristol? You know, housing, health, you know, uh, social inequality, mm. kids from parts of the city not going to university, you know, send crisis. Uh, well, you know, we've just had a stabbing in Bristol last week. You know, is this the type of stuff that is a real concern in the here and now for Bristol to, to get like a, another Eden project up by the Danes in the posh part of Bristol? It's another Eden project. It's unique project that will influence what happens across the world. I've just been talking to India. Well, India have got 160 or so zoos, most of which are within cities, most of which are challenged in some way or other. Now, if you multiply that across the world, all the countries and their zoos, um, they're all going to have to review what they do. I've been to zoos in India. The zoos are not great, are they? And, and in your defence, you know, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a bit, but you're somebody that, and I suppose architects are that, are visionaries that kind of see what is possible and see something that can add to 
the natural environment that isn't currently there, something that's ahead of the kind of curve. And in fairness, whilst I say, yes, you know, you're seen as an establishment figure and were merchant venture ex-mayor, when you moved in the tobacco factory, you didn't do that at that time in Safefield. How long ago are we talking? 20 odd years? No, yeah, 27 yeah. years. You yeah. didn't choose to locate in Clifton. You did that at the time in, and really, and I know working class people from North Street and, and around Bedminster that actually say that, what you have done in that area has uplifted it and and you oh. went to a working class area to do that. And that's also a part of your story that I don't think people always give you credit for. Well, I'm not looking for the credit. No, not credit, but you know, I think it, it's been lost that. a bit in the narrative. Yeah. What was, what was great about the tobacco factory project, which by the way, has exceeded all expectations, my, all my expectations is that I saw it as a way of demonstrating that there is a better way of regenerating places than just building big buildings. And that Mm -hmm. is is repurposing what we've got into a mixture of uses. But it's now used, and I use it across the world, as a demonstration of what I'd call real social regeneration. and, And I... And, you know, some people would say it's gentrification, but I think it's about getting the balance right. There is, of course, there's an element in gentrification in any regeneration, but what you've got yeah. to be really careful of is that you're inclusive. Do you see yourself as a maverick? Do you see yourself as someone who yeah, is kind of innovative, that, that thinks outside the box? Well, I like to push against things, and I like what I describe as the art of the impossible. You know, you know it's, it's, it's great to prove things are possible that people think are impossible. So yeah, I do get I do get some satisfaction out of that. But you know, I've failed lots. You know, there are lots of things that I've tried to do that yeah. have that that have failed. But you don't get anything done unless you try it. And I think you were seen as a man of kind of a, a maverick, a sort of slight kicking against the the establishment a bit, which is why I always find it slightly odd that you actually were a merchant venturer, because that seems like the seems to be running completely diametrically opposite to that 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 is surely the seat of bristol's establishment what why 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 i know you stood down before you were mayor but why did you someone like you become one i would think that you better change things from inside than out and uh and uh my acceptance speech to be a member of the virtual ventures was uh, about 30 words it was uh thank you now you've elected an architect and a red trousered one at that it's a very small step to elect a woman. And um, okay. it took them yeah. five years to elect a woman. Now they've got yeah. a, a a lady master. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, Julian. Yeah. You know, and we say the Chinese are slow at moving things. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, um, what do you, as, an, as now, and I'm interested in this, I've made a documentary about the Merchant Ventures for Radio 4, and, I, and, I, mm-hmm. and obviously, is it a bit like the, the sort of Masons or the sort of, see, once you leave, you never really leave? Oh no! No, I've, no, I've left. And Have you um, left? so, so tell me what. So now you've left. What, what, is, what is it actually like? You know, because you get a lot of sort of fringe journalists in Bristol and sort of Twitter activists that think it's this sort of like, you know, Dan, uh, you know, kind of secret cabal kind of thing. Is is a lot of that nonsense, or is that? Yeah. Well, to be honest, I think they mainly do good things. They're a charitable yeah. organisation. Um, the other thing that I said is that I thought that there was too much. Um, uh, focus on private education and that we should, you know, that the merchants should get involved in more in public education and academies, which they've done. Um, I think the merchants have moved, you know, are moving with the times. They realize, you know, yeah. they're no longer the slave traders. Yeah. Um, would you join uh, them again if they asked you? Would you go back? No, no. And right that I wouldn't. It's, why not? Why not? Well, I think they need younger more diverse membership and uh, I would not re- represent younger or more diverse in any way. And um, maybe apart from opinion, but yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a broad range of opinion within the merchants mm. um, that the um, bringing of women into it has um, hugely improved them. Um, all the money that um, comes from the merchants goes into in, into good charitable things for old people, particularly some for young. Um, you know, so yeah, I know that it's fun having a pop at the merchants, but I think they've been 
in recent years, I think they've been on balance really good for Bristol. Lovely. I'm going to round up, I think, on a sort of a negative and a positive, because I think that I say the one thing I would say, whilst you might disagree on a number of things, one thing I think you and the current mayor have in common is that you both attracted your fair share of online Twitter trolls. And every time you tweeted, there would be criticism of you. Um, it, it was it quite liberating moving away and and you know don't get me wrong some of that might be legitimate criticism but a lot of the time I think it's it's I don't know whether you feel that that the mayor or the mayoral role is like a hologram for anyone's anger and frustrations about anything that happens in Bristol and it would be like well can you do this can you do that and it's a it's a it's a thankless task two questions really do you see it as a thankless task and secondly can you now breathe more and you able to tweet without being jumped on by about 10 different people. No, I don't. I I never saw it as a thankless task. And uh, I get thanked more now I'm not mayor than I ever did when I was mayor. But that's, you know, I love walking. Oh, do you? That's interesting. Okay. I get get the odd um, swear word out of a car window, but it's very seldom now. And the Twitter thing, I think, is that it's aggravating, but you can mute people very easily. So they think they're Twittering Mm -hmm. away at you and you can't hear them. And, you know, I think blocking people is not sensible. But uh, Did you block anyone when you were mayor? I did early on, then I learned not to. Because that's something that the mayor's been doing quite a lot since he's won this time round, isn't it? But I would defend Marvin to the death. And I said that when he beat me on the day he beat me. You know, if, if, if people threaten him, I think it's outrageous, you know, and I do feel for him. He's got a young family and sure. I think it's horrible to be to be threatened in a way that he and I were. And I did have a, I had a chat with Marvin about it. We don't often talk, yeah. not deliberately, but we don't often talk. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was sympathising with him, but the, it sometimes does feel dodgy. And in, a, in an odd way, you're kind of the only two people in Bristol that have ever done that job and the only two people that probably would fully understand <laughs> what each other goes through. And I, and I think perhaps when, you know, politicians are always more honest and reflective when they leave office, you know, there's always great interviews in there with politicians that you see on the telly and stuff. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that there is a... There must be a shared experience between both of you that understands something that uniquely that nobody else does. Do you get me? Do you get me? Well, I would like to feel there was some sort of bond, and if there is, it's that one. And uh, <laughs> Sorry. It, Let's end, I'm trying to end on a unified note. <laughs> something that you can kind of connect yeah. with. Um, yeah. I'm a hundred percent with Marvin about that. Thank you, George. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Neil, always a pleasure. Always challenging. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Hopefully you did. And um, thank you, George. All the best. Bye, Neil. Take care. Many thanks to George Ferguson for being our guest on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. And as usual, we'll be back next week with a fantastic topic and a brand new guest. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join 2,600 Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.